This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to the show. Ellen Liebeter with you. Today, how to improve your running technique. I've heard of some, you know, really sort of simple ways of doing it. Like some, some people will say that, you know, if you, you're watching someone run towards you, you shouldn't see the soles of their feet. And how manuka honey could be the next big thing in treating antibiotic resistance. But first on the show, if you've ever had to find an aged care facility for a loved one, you know how hard it can be. Maybe you've done it for a family member who isn't as strong and healthy as they once were, which in itself is hard to come to terms with. But on top of this emotional stress, you have to pore over pamphlets and websites, comparing costs, locations and facilities. Nina Kopel has been looking at the aged care system and what needs to change. It's quiet because it's lunchtime here at Macquarie Lodge Aged Care Plus Centre, and today is Fish Day, one of the residents' favourites. Maureen Berry is an activities officer here at the centre, and she's taking me around, introducing me to some of her friends. Nina, she's from the radio station. Nina. 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 With an N. Where does the N go? At the beginning. (laughs) How are you, Nina? I resigned a dying here. So I've got to fit in with their procedure. Yeah, yeah. And that means playing, playing the games. Yes, that's right, yes. We've got a very good uh, activities lady here. We couldn't do without her. We have residents' meetings once a month and I always put it out there what sort of activities they would like to do or, you know. We've started knitting and I've got so many squares coming out my ears so we, 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 we're starting to knit them together and we're going to make a blanket. Just from chatting to everyone, it's clear to me that food and bingo are the biggest crowd drawers around here. Food's food's good. Just saying how I have to be very careful now. (laughs) But not everyone likes the same activities. When Noreen introduces me to Maureen, she's busy helping her friend. The skin of the fish is crispy today and her friend is struggling with it, so Maureen's cutting it up and feeding her. Now that they've got older... They don't like the crunchy things. When she's not at meals and helping out her friends, Maury likes to spend time in her room, colouring in and doing puzzles. While she doesn't go to many of the group activities, she's been here 10 months and seems to feel right at home. The minute I walked in the door, I felt the love that was here. But this wasn't the same for the first aged care facility Maury went to, which she really didn't like. Because of the clientele that was at the other place screaming all night and lights flashing on and don't have that here. So when it comes to choosing an aged care facility for our loved ones, how do we know that we're making the right choice? In Australia, we have an aged care quality agency and every three years it measures all aged care facilities to ensure they're meeting minimum standards. According to Richard Baldwin, associate in the Faculty of Health at UTS, 96% of them at any one time have full accreditation, 
But that doesn't necessarily help families make their choice. There's a debate in the industry about whether that really measures quality. What it does is, is it acknowledges that those services are meeting minimum standards. So we're not in a position of actually saying whether one provider provides higher quality than another or one sector provides higher quality than another. What we do know is that if you look at the international evidence, for-profit providers come out as providing higher quality of care in those studies where it's been possible to measure the quality of care. And that's a consistent finding over a number of decades in a number of countries. Now, that doesn't mean that for-profit providers provide bad care. It doesn't mean that at all. And most for-profit providers meet minimum standards and provide good care. But what the international evidence says is that if you are going to have a system, if you're going to change your system and change the balance between for-profit and not-for-profit providers, then you ought to think carefully about whether you want to go down a policy pathway that is going to see for-profit providers predominant in the market as they have in other countries that have gone down this pathway. When we are talking about measuring quality, what are the actual things that we're looking for? Well, there are two main areas where you might want to measure quality. One is quality of care and the other one is quality of life. And they're sort of broad catch-all categories and some indicators slip from one to the other depending on who's talking at the moment. But quality of care means that if you've got residents who are dependent on high-quality nursing care, they're primarily in their bed most of the day or severely disabled, then you want to make sure that the quality of care that is is measured around things like uh, admissions to hospital infection rates or bed ulcers, um, uh, what have you. Of course, not everybody that's in residential aged care is bed-bound and an increasing proportion of people in residential aged care with dementia, are still physically well. So for those, you would be concerned, and also for the people in bed, about their quality of life. Things like dignity and privacy, capacity to make decisions about food and entertainment. And at the moment, we don't have a system across Australia that collects data and enables consumers, and governments for that matter, to compare quality of life and quality of care across the whole system. So if you were in the situation where a loved one or a family member was going into aged care and you were considering these things, you were considering quality of life and quality of care, how would you go about making the decision about going to the right place? Is there any information available? There's a, there's very little information available other than what you do by phoning around and you know checking up your contacts, asking your GP. It's a very, those circumstances where as a family member you have to make the decision about residential aged care for a loved one are usually taken in some sort of crisis. So mum and dad's fallen over, gone into hospital, it's clear that they're not going to be able to be looked after at home again and the hospital wants them out of the acute care bed and you start hunting around for a facility that you're happy with. Under the current system, across the country, bed occupancy is around 93%. Now, that varies a little bit from location to location. But what it means is that a lot of the services that you try the first time are going to be full. 
or near fall. And so you don't necessarily end up with the place that you would choose. And of course, one of the things that a lot of the discussions about quality and choice in aged care fails to take into consideration is that when you're buying or purchasing services in residential aged care, you're buying a bundle of attributes. So you're buying care, you're buying a lifestyle, you're buying location, you're buying something that's affordable, and there might be some other aspects of that, hotel services, for example, food and uh, comfort. So families will often be forced to make some decisions. They might say, well, we want our loved one to be in a facility that's close by, even if the quality isn't as high as we would like. So they'll trade off quality for location. Another family might say, no, we want the highest value. We're prepared to pay more, even if that means going to a place that's further away. So these are individual decisions. And we don't have a rating system that tells us how one service rates on a you know, lifestyle and quality of accommodation versus quality of care, etc. So it's very difficult for uh, individuals to make those decisions at the moment. The government's moving down that pathway with the My Aged Care website, where it started off a couple of years ago requiring aged care providers to put their prices up on the My Aged Care website against the characteristics of their particular facility. And there's been a program of developing quality indicators. The three of them have been trialled to date and individual providers will be able to put up the statistics around their quality indicators up on the My Aged Care website. But of course there are a small number of indicators and it's early days and it will be some years I would suspect before that system's fully up and running. And surely if those organisations are providing that information themselves, they have a a vested interest in selling their services, don't they? Yes, one would hope that over time that system would have some validity and reliability to it so that the way that the data is collected and the way that the data is analysed and the way that the data is reported is the same for all services. I think we've got a way to go for that to happen yet. Is there somewhere else in the world that's got this right, that has some sort of comparison system that we can look to as a a way of moving forward? Well, both the United States and the United Kingdom use a star rating system, which a number of advocates claim is more consumer-friendly than the Australian system. Of course, star rating systems have their shortcomings and their criticisms as well. The United States, because of some reforms that were legislated a couple of decades ago, collects an enormous amount of data, and uh, their star rating system is based on, you know, very large data sets. I can't tell you uh, how accurate that is, but at least it provides some level of information. There's some research to say that consumers use that rating system and understand it. That research also suggests that they don't 100% rely on it. So it's just another piece of information that they use in making a decision about a particular facility. I want to ask more about this idea of life care as as opposed to quality quality of life versus quality quality of of care. care. Yeah. So when we talk about this quality of life, what are the factors that can be forgotten? Quality of life is important for all residents and it's particularly important for what we used to call low care residents. That is 
those older people who still have a level of functionality in relation to activities of daily living but can't live independently and also for people with greater disabilities. We tended not to focus on leisure activities. In other words, the common experience that people complain of is that you go and visit a place and there's one television in the corner and it's turned on to one program and everybody's sitting around forced to watch the same program. So that's one area. Dignity and privacy are big issues. They're part of the certification standards. But, of course, that might vary from one individual to another. Of course, what we've got between rural and metropolitan services is the amount of money that's available to those facilities to put in the services that meet individual needs. From government? Uh, Well, from government, but also from the consumers. These days, most consumers who purchase a refundable accommodation deposit for their accommodation will rely on the value of their house for the level that they can pay and understandably the more you pay probably the higher quality uh, facility that you're going to get. So people in the bush whose house prices are generally lower than those in the city can afford less when they go into residential aged care and so they might be struggling more to get the choice of leisure activities and standard of accommodation etc that they would wish for. Richard Baldwin, Associate in the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology Sydney and Fellow of the Australasian College of Health Management, ending that report by Nina Kobel. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Well, running is fast becoming one of the most popular forms of exercise. Nearly 2 million Aussies have taken up the habit as an easy way to get fit. Its popularity is partially down to its convenience – All you need is a pair of shoes and maybe a running buddy, and you're good to go. Running has been something we as humans have been doing for hundreds of years. But just because we have evolved to run doesn't necessarily mean we're running correctly. Half of all adults who run regularly get injured each year, so what can you do to reduce injury? I'm at a run training session in Borkham Hills in Sydney's northwest. It's a bit more structured than my normal run, usually a run around the block, but I'm hoping the coach tonight can improve my technique. We start off with a warm up run, then move into some drills. There's some jogging on the spot before you have to break out into a sprint, as well as drills more focused on the proper movement of the foot and legs. Then a five kilometre time trail something to improve on over the coming weeks. All right, similar thing, but this time... Enoch is the running coach for tonight. My name's Enoch, uh, and I look after all the running here at One Body. So what do you look for in a good runner? Uh, Look at their body positioning. Um, So it doesn't matter what body shape or body type you are, everyone can run efficiently and economically, uh, and it's just fitting it to their unique body shape. Right. So what sort of injuries do you commonly see among runners? Uh, Definitely a lot of knee injuries and um, a lot of hip injuries as well. Uh, And they're usually just from overuse and just high impact from too much running with um, maybe the not 
not like a correct technique or just poor posture. And how do you fix it? What sort of techniques do you use? Um, so if we take it a step back, there's definitely a lot of strengthening work that we have to do. So we have to strengthen the right muscles for their running. Um, and then in terms of technique, we really, really have to look at their body posture. So just make sure that they're uh, not hunching over too much, uh, that they're engaging the right muscles when they run, um, and that they're just striking the ground in an efficient way. But what does it mean to run efficiently? Dr Lee Wallace is a sports science lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney. So what is a correct, what does a correct running technique look like? There's a lot of, it's a pretty, it's a pretty hot topic, the running technique topic. There's a lot of things that our researchers in this field will agree on. Generally, the most important is running with correct cadence. Um, so and, what's that? Uh, r- roughly around 180 sort of strikes per minute. So that your feet will come into contact with the ground 180 times. Equally as important to that would be landing with your uh, the feet un- directly underneath your body. So the most common mistake people will make is to overstride, which tends to mean that in itself you know, can be confusing for some, but it tends to mean that your foot will come into contact with the ground in front of your body rather than under your body. Uh, and in doing that increases the force through your body. People have different running styles, correct? Yes. How do you differentiate between a person's individual running style and one that isn't technically correct? Sometimes it's hard to see. Sometimes it's easier to see. There's a whole business of you know analysing running technique. I've heard of some you know really sort of simple ways of doing it. Like some some people will say that you know if you, you're watching someone run towards you, you shouldn't see the soles of their feet um, because if you're seeing the soles of their feet, then they're lifting the front of their foot too high. Other people will look at, you know, get you on a treadmill and, you know, look at, do some video work and look at where, you know, your body's position compared to your foot contact time. Some people look at the wear pattern on the bottom of your shoes and and ascertain where you're striking the ground and the way your foot's moving. When we're talking about foot strike, there is the ongoing argument of whether forefoot, midfoot or the heel is the best way to strike. Have we got a consensus on this yet? There's definitely no consensus. Um... There is a consensus in that um, it's more important as to where your foot strikes in relation to your body rather than how your foot is actually striking. I mean, you can you can overstride and still be a midfoot striker and you can stride correctly and, be a, and, and run on your heel. So uh, it tends to be that when your foot comes more underneath your body, you'll, you'll move to more of a mid to forefoot, but it's not always the case. What about surfaces? Sand, grass, concrete, what does the most damage and what's the best for runners? The surface really is secondary to the actual technique of the runner. In saying that, it's more likely that, you know, in general population, the technique of a runner is not going to be perfect. Therefore, softer surfaces would reduce the impact forces. Um, However, that's not to say you're running on a hard surface, you're going to get injured or vice versa. Um, I've actually heard the opposite as well, that a soft surface will increase whatever it is that you're doing. Like if you're you know, overpronating, a soft surface will increase your overpronation. So surfaces, I would say softer surfaces, you're more likely to get less injuries, but that does not, that does not necessarily mean that's the case either. We started off by saying that humans, we've evolved, sorry, we've evolved to run, it's natural to run. Is our 21st century running style different to what we would have seen a couple of hundred years ago? That's, I mean, there was a, there was a, there's a book that came out, Born to Run, a few years ago. Now it was started a big craze in minimalist running, 
it actually reads that um, you know the the inclusion of cushioning systems through our heel essentially have changed our running technique to land more on our on our heels so that's in sh- running shoes in running shoes i mean uh, in in the running shoes of the 70s and 80s today's running shoes are, are probably evening out a little bit more um probably a little bit more variety in running shoes now to accommodate all kinds of different forms of running but we started off in minimalist shoes then we went to heavily cushioned shoes and particularly in the the rear foot and now we're kind of coming full circle back to more minimalist shoes so running shoes have got um different heel drops in them so you've got like what is a minimalist shoe versus what is a shoe that's heavily cushioned traditional running shoes have got you know 12 to 14 mil drop which means so when you read like about a running shoe and it'll, it'll have this term you know 12 mil drop it's referring to the difference in height between the heel and the, and the toes so you know if the heel is sitting you know, 22 mils off the ground and the toe is sitting 10 mil off the ground then it's a 12 mil drop between them both so the argument is how does a running shoe promote the way you run and that's why the minimalist shoe craze has come in in the first place so a, a, a more minimalist shoe with a less of a heel drop so zero to four mil drop between the back and front of the shoe um, is said to promote more midfoot and forefoot running technique so a uh, more quote natural running style more natural running style yeah using your arch as a as the shock absorber so when you think about your body your heel itself is not a good shock absorber Uh, your heel essentially is a fatty pad on the end of a bone Um, whereas your arch containing you know many joints many small bones the actual arch itself works as a spring to reduce forces and propel yourself forward so the thought is landing further forward on your foot would reduce impact forces and also increase propulsion so the shoes with the big heel drop it's kind of making runners hit the ground heel first yeah it doesn't from, from the weight of the shoe or it doesn't it doesn't make you hit the ground first but if you did hit the ground with your heel you'd it'd be less noticed because the the cushioning will compensate for the you you won't feel the thud because you've got the cushioning so it's kind of like a, a spring it's kind of like a bit of a it's kind of like a bit of a it'll disguise the impact forces. So there's one thought that you know with a with a more of a heel, more cushion in the heel, because you you can run this way, and you, you potentially could be overstriding. It's less noticeable. Therefore, you'll be disguising your poor technique, right? Um, so then we go the other way and go. Well, let's put a more minimalist shoe on. Let's use our feet as a natural shock absorber as they've been designed to do. However, because the you know the, your, your muscles in the lower legs mightn't be as as developed uh, around your feet, you might you know your your Achilles, your calves have been shortened from everyday wear and use or walking around in heels. All of a sudden, you put this minimalist shoe on, your foot's subject to more loading force than it's used to, and you become injured that way. So it seems like you can be injured in both ways quite easily. There is uh, I've heard the argument before that. It's sometimes it's not technique, it's not surface, it's the fact that you've changed shoes that causes yeah, injury. That that could be true as well. Like anything, any change. Some people are like, uh, I always talk to them as like you know, Mack trucks versus Ferrari and it's got nothing to do with how you look or how you run. Some people are resilient to change and some people are not. You've got some people just the slightest tweak of anything and bang, they'll get injured. Um, and other people change all day long, whatever shoes, doesn't matter, they'll just run in whatever. So it's, it's an interesting one as well. 
What about the future of running science and running research? Where do you see that heading? I mean, they're still got to answer the debate, really. Like, it's you, you, the news forums wouldn't be running so hot if we had all the answers on on minimalist first first you know rear foot. Um, so uh, there's definitely still more research there, uh, more research without shoe companies involved. <laughs> that's that's another area of massive debate for people is like who's funding half of these half of these you know research projects. But yeah, still the debate of what's better, forefoot, midfoot, rear foot. But I think we can. I think we're satisfied that where the foot should land underneath the body. I think we're satisfied with that. With all that in mind, if you are a runner looking to improve your technique, Enoch says you should head to your local run club. Um, so most of your local running clubs should provide you with a fair bit of information to help you. Um, so a lot of the athletics clubs uh, do a lot of work with that. Uh, I know New South Wales athletics help a lot in terms of their running development. But apart from that, yeah, it is true. It is, it is quite hard to, to find stuff out there. Um, and I think to find something that suits you personally as well is quite tough. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3, online at 2SER.com or on your favourite podcast app. Now, we have something extra to share with you this week. If you like Think Health, you might enjoy one of our other Think shows, Think Sustainability. We're joined now by Jake Morecambe, the producer of the program. Hello. Hi, Ellen. Think Sustainability looks at practical solutions for a better planet, and you've got a story for us this week that ties in with health. Yeah, so you've heard of antibiotic resistance, right? Yeah. Basically, this means when we use too many drugs to treat an infection, we can develop a resistance to that drug, and then sometimes can be stuck with that infection if we don't respond to other medications. And that's pretty scary, so scary that some scientists are calling it as big of a threat to humanity as climate change. Whoa. Yeah, so a group of researchers at UTS are currently looking at whether manuka honey, which is a honey found here in Australia and New Zealand, might just help fight wound infections in particular. Here's Shona Blair from the I3 Institute at UTS to explain in more detail. It's really exciting and very interesting because this compound, this special compound that we now know is in Manuka honey that's come directly from the flower. As the bees go to the flower, they collect the nectar, take it back to the hive and ripen it into honey. Many honeys have some degree of antimicrobial activity because of the natural process of making honey and the bees adding a variety of enzymes. But Manuka type honeys from Australia and from New Zealand have a special compound that's come directly across from the flower And this has really high levels of activity. When you take out all the other things that are in normal honeys, they're still really, really powerful at killing germs. And that's what we found in hospitals and nursing homes for things like really bad non-healing ulcers on legs and things for diabetic patients or elderly patients. Manuka honey seems to be able to kickstart the healing process. It clears up the infection and actually stimulates the healing as well. And with the research that you're doing with Manuka honey and taking into consideration how it's been used traditionally in the past, what are you finding now as effective ways in terms of wound treatment or even using it as or using it for its antimicrobial properties? 
I've been particularly interested in looking at how we can use honey, particularly Manuka-type honeys, to kill or inhibit these really nasty multiple drug-resistant bugs. They call them superbugs sometimes in hospital. Something like golden staph is an example. The reason we're so fearful of these organisms is that 50 years ago, we used to, if you got a scratch and you got an infection for this, no problems. I'll give you a little bit of penicillin or another type of antibiotic and you'll be fine. But now, because these bugs have been so constantly exposed to these types of drugs, they've developed resistance. And now a fairly simple scratch or a simple operation or side effects after chemo, all those kinds of things can become very, very dangerous again because they're very, very hard to treat. Obviously, honey isn't something that you could use for a systemic infection or an infection sort of right into inside of an internal organ or something like that. However, most infections start from the outside. So it's a great dressing to put on straight away after surgery, after any sort of trauma. And it stops these bugs. It kills these bugs. It kills these superbugs, these multi-drug resistant organisms, these antibiotic resistant microbes that we're frankly terrified of. Jake Morecambe speaking there to Shona Blair from the I3 Institute. And if you want to hear more from Think Sustainability, head to 2ser.com forward slash Think Sustainability or subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to find out more about anything you heard today, you can visit us at 2ser.com forward slash Think Health. You can also tweet us at 2SER. Please remember that journalists are not doctors. If we've made you ask questions, go and see your GP. This show is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health. I'm Ellen Leavitter. See you next week for more.